Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. As with so many religious festivals, Christmas can be a delight for the senses. There's the smell of pine needles as we bring Christmas trees into our home, or perhaps the warm, aromatic spices for gingerbread, mince pies and mulled wine. There's the visual delight of twinkling lights, pushing back the darkness, in the Western Hemisphere at least. And of course, there's the music. Whether you love nothing more than the sounds of Shaking Stevens or Slade, beautiful choral arrangements, or a traditional carol, there is music to delight every ear. It's on the radio, in shops, in places of worship and concerts, in theatres and in homes. In short, at Christmas time, music is everywhere. But what about in Tudor England? What music would we have heard if we visited the court of Henry VIII in the Christmas period? How about if we entered a parish church? What music might we have heard as we sat amongst the other parishioners? And would we have heard festive music or singing if we walked the streets of a city like London? To learn about the music and carols of Henry VIII's England, I'm joined today by Lisa Colton, Professor of Musicology and Head of the Department of Music at the University of Liverpool. She's published widely on medieval and early modern music, including her book Female Voice Song and Women's Musical Agency in the Middle Ages, and her article High or Low, Medieval English Carols as Part of Vernacular Culture, 1380 to 1450, which she co-wrote with Dr. Louise McInnes. But today, I've asked her to talk to me about music and carols in the early 16th century. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and talking to me about music. I'm really excited to talk about this. I've been listening in advance to the carols and getting in the spirit of the thing. So I'm looking forward to this so much. Me too. I like carols. So, Professor Colton, I'd like to start, if we may, by thinking about music in the period in its widest sense. So give me an idea of the types of music we would hear if we were suddenly transported back to Henry VIII's court. Sure. So imagine we're at Henry VIII's court and it's this time of year, you know, the nights are long and Christmas is sort of on the horizon. Music making would be a really important part of our daily lives. There would be formal bits of music. We would be treated to music as part of worship as we walk through the streets in places where people gather together and at mealtimes, depending on our social status and that sort of thing. But if we're at Henry's court, then there would be a lot of music in lots of different places um, and different times of the day. And Christmas formed a sort of special time, not just through Advent and Christmas Day itself, but also in those special days between Christmas and Epiphany at the end of the first week in January. So that really was the highlight of festive music making for the year. So just when the nights are the the longest, there's more time for revelry. And music and musicians are a really important part of all of those sorts of celebrations. Who was performing music at court then? You've mentioned sacred music and also 
the music of the court itself. Who was doing it and how did one get to do that? How did one get that position to be a musician at court? So there were professional musicians. Henry paid for really a lot of musicians and also made sure that he had collections of musical instruments dotted around his various residences, not only in religious spaces like chapels and churches, but also within the more domestic spaces, the secular spaces of his properties. He paid for minstrels to perform music at different times of day, but also had a chapel, royal chapel, full of really specialist performers, particularly singers and players on instruments like the organ for complex piece of music, what we might call polyphony, that is music in more than one part. So in those sacred spaces, mainly voices and organ, occasionally other instruments, outside of those spaces, as many instruments as you can imagine, harps, viols, rebecs, sackbutts, cornets, crumb horns, and even the occasional recorder to take us back to our primary school years. He clearly enjoyed music making and was often even part of that music making. So you've painted a beautiful picture of this time of year in the Tudor period, and I feel like I need to light a candle and kind of join in the spirit of the thing. But let's think a little bit more specifically about music at this time of year. Would we have heard carols in the early Tudor court? The early Tudor court was one of the main times in which we start to see carols being performed regularly. So even at the end of the, the 15th century in the 1480s, we have records of the king and the court moving between a mass in a church building and then going for a feast. And when they get to the feast, their musicians are there ready sat down, not sung, not stood up, sat down and singing various carols between the different courses. So we have records of, for example, after the first course in the 1480s, some carolers incontinently singing a carol, which sounds like it must have just gone on forever. You'd get quite hungry waiting for the main course to come in next. So music was a, a, a sort of partly a ritual function, sort of separating and structuring the meal, but also, of course, for entertainment as well. And did they call them carols at the time? The word carol has quite a long heritage. It, you know, we find the word carol even in really early medieval sources. And in the northern part of France, we find caroling as a, a word that sort of evokes song and dance. By the time it's being used in the Tudor period, the word carol is used to describe really any kind of song that has a repeated element, like a chorus, for example, that keeps coming round. And they're usually by this point in either English with a bit of Latin, or sometimes exclusively in Latin, and also sometimes exclusively in English. And they can be about absolutely any subject. But because of the particular concentration of these caroling events around Christmas and New Year, the majority of them are about Advent, Christmas and Epiphany. That's so interesting. So that we really ought to call them Christmas carols if we're being specific to the ones absolutely. we think of as carols. Yes. I mean, carol, in a sense, it just means song. And it's definitely used in that more, much more general context. But by the time you get to the, the, the early part of the 16th century, they are being described as Christmas carols or songs for Christmas. But we also see them evoked even in the 14th century. If, if you know the story of Gawain and the Green Knight, carols crop up in that poem as they're all sort of sat round in exactly that time of year between Christmas and Epiphany uh, and the Green Knight appears. It appears just after they've sung various festive songs and carols are mentioned there as well. So there is something Christmassy about carols, even if they can be about any subject. But we, we might call them Christmas carols if we're talking particularly about the ones that are about the birth of Christ, for example, or the, the stories from the Bible from that sort of period. 
But one thing they have in common from what you're saying is that carols have words, they're not just music and melody. That's right. So carols are always texted songs. And although they can be about any subject, really a lot of them do tend to be about this time of year, Christmas time. And one final sort of definitional point, did they serve a kind of purpose or a function in the early modern era? Like, I'm asking, I suppose, about the balance between carols as kind of formal allegory versus being pleasurable entertainments? It's a really good question. I don't think there was one single specific functional use for carols at this period. They turn up in plays, for example, mystery plays, in which, of course, you know, that tells often the whole story of the of the Bible and includes references to music making around the nativity story. So something like the Coventry Carol evokes the massacre of the Holy Innocents, which is, of course, an important part of that story. So apart from plays, carols can also turn up in all sorts of different collections. Some people collected them as sort of miscellaneous or like a little scrapbook of carols. We find them owned by London merchants, for example, and into the 16th century, we find them being copied alongside a whole variety of other songs, some of them religious songs, some of them not remotely religious songs. So they clearly were also part of festive musical performances. What they definitely didn't seem to be is formal liturgical songs for worship per se. So there's nothing that would have stopped them being sung in church spaces, but there was no requirement for them to be sung in those spaces. It's really interesting because that puts them apart, doesn't it, in some ways, because most music is going to be divided between whether it is something for social entertainment and whether it's something for high worship. And the fact that they transcend these two different spaces is really, really fascinating. I think it is. And it's partly they're able to do that because they're also using English. And so they have that ability to be used in different types of space and to kind of be understood readily by much wider audiences than some religious music. We've also got to remember that devotional life was not just when you're inside the church. You know, devotional life was also when you're walking around the the streets or going on pilgrimage or all sorts of things that might happen outside of a, a formal ritual space like a church but they are unusual in that sense in that unlike something like a a setting of a curie or a bit of plain chant they aren't restricted to to use in a in a religious space environment everything you say makes me want to ask another 10 questions like let's think about the nobility and royalty you mentioned henry the eighth himself we know that he's a keen musician a keen composer and a singer do we have any evidence particularly connecting him or indeed other members of of the royalty or nobility with the writing and performance of carols? Depending on how you define a carol, it's very clear that the sorts of songs that were owned by Henry VIII, his various wives and and other senior figures in, in the 16th century would have been involved in the performance of carols themselves and would also have been paying professional musicians to to perform them for them, to compose new ones, that sort of thing. And and the sort of manuscripts that survive from that period that contain carols are the ones that get written down into fairly prestigious sources that clearly had noble patrons associated with them in order to afford these lavish sources in the first place. We know that Henry loved music and he's obviously associated with the composition of songs like Pastime with Good Company, those sorts of songs that have a festive and celebratory purpose and that relate to sort of 
secular celebration as well as to, to religious devotion. So I'm not sure that there's much evidence that Henry wrote lots of different carols, but he would have been familiar with songs that fulfil that function and songs of that nature, and especially at this time of year. Who's singing them? Because we've talked a bit about language, actually, I'd like to ask a bit more about that in a second, but it isn't standard at this time of the congregation to sing, is it? And one of the things that characterises the Huguenots is that the members of the congregation are singing, and that's different. So who is singing these songs? So these are not songs for a congregation to sing, but they are songs in which, because of their chorus, you can imagine each time you've had somebody performing a verse, there's the opportunity for everybody to pile in with the chorus each time it comes around, because, you know, you learn the chorus after a couple of goes round, whoever you are. Within the context of, of plays, for example, we know that the performers are likely to be young men and older adult men involved in the performance of those plays, taking the role of lamenting women, taking the role of the three kings, taking the role of the sort of major figures of the Bible, who therefore are sort of singing in role as a dramatic function. So that might have been in the streets, that could have been in on wagons, all sorts of different places like that. We also know that in banqueting halls, for example, the musicians, the paid musicians, were predominantly adult men. But there are also records, of course, of, of women being minstrels, being professional musical performers, and sometimes also singing songs of a particular nature to a, a royal figure of that time. And of course, Henry's wives were pretty musical too. So you can imagine this is not only for, for one type of voice, one type of singer, and you know, men and women would have been part of that, of that uh, environment. So that kind of creates this fascinating possibility that whereas songs are sung by specific people, here we have songs that actually draw in a, a wider group of singers. There's almost something subversive about that? I think carols in their texts tell us that they wanted people to take part. So often the chorus will be words like, you know, sing we all now and some, and then it will, you know, say something in Latin or it'll say something in English that says basically, let's celebrate the Virgin or let's celebrate Jesus or whatever that might be. And the fact that the, the choruses themselves are an sort of invocation for everyone to join in or to reflect on who the, not necessarily audience in a formal concert arrangement is, but who's listening. Those who are involved are also the listeners. There is a sense of, of participation in all of these. So there is potentially some subversive stuff going on in terms of, you know, not, not restricting or limiting the performance space to those who have received the highest levels of training, for example. Like the idea that possibly as people were going about their Advent fast, they're humming away to themselves the carols that they've heard. Yeah, yeah why not? I mean, I, absolutely. And as I say, the, the, these these carols, the ones that we have now, the ones that have been written down, seem to suggest that they had their roots in a much broader oral culture, that songs of this nature were absolutely ubiquitous, would have been heard in lots and lots of different spaces. So this is not, you know, you go to a concert and listen quietly while you hear a performance. That's not what, that's not what musical culture was in this period. Instead, carols are a sort of body of, of, of music that belongs to everyone. And the ones that we have happen to be the ones that got written down at some point for whatever reason. And that's the, that's the curiosity, really, because I think a lot of carols show their heritage and having been part of what we might see as more popular music making, you know, oral culture, the sort of ways in which 
little phrases return in lots of different things. The refrains are very common. You know, they all sing Noel, Noel, Noel 53 times. You know, there's a, there's a sense that, oh, yeah, we know how a carol goes and you can kind of make one up and you, all you have to do is tell that bit of the story again in verse and then sing Noel each, you know, every four, four lines or whatever. And that, that's, that's your carol. That's done. And sometimes they were monophonic, you know, that is, they were in one part. And the ones that we recognize as carols now because they got written down tend to have been written down by people who were more specialist at writing. So because of that, they tend to be the more complex ones. But that doesn't mean that they are the most typical songs that they might have recognised as carols. My my guess is that there was a you know a vast repertory of Christmas songs changing all the time, different versions, you know, the version in London, the version in York, the version in Norwich, there'll have been slight variations, and everyone will have kind of known the themes and known some of the choruses, but I bet the verses differed in lots of different places too. So, you know, it's a sort of, it's a living tradition, really. And when we get written down versions, they just represent one one of those versions at one time and place for one particular function, one particular user, perhaps one particular audience. Tell me a bit about these sources that you have. That w- What do you as a musicologist draw on t- to know about these carols? So the carol sources that we have from this sort of period and, and the earliest ones we have of carols seem to date from the early part of the 15th century. And they largely collect together groups of pieces, many of which are kind of Christmassy or Adventy or epiphany and put them together into to, to a space that they're connected perhaps by the fact that for maybe three voices, they've got this sort of little structure about them. Some carol sources don't have any music with them at all. And I think that's important to remember that we actually have hundreds of carols, say from the 15th century, that we can't listen to because the, the music hasn't been written down. So we tend to rely, for telling our history of the carol, we tend to rely on the ones that that do have the music written down because it's more sort of immediate for us. The earliest ones are carols like the Agincourt carol that has, of course, nothing to do with music and is more of a political song. But other carols of that early 15th century period that that deal particularly with the Virgin Mary, for example. The Trinity carol role is perhaps one of the most well-loved early sources of, of English carols from that early part of the 15th century. Then there's a there's one or two sort of fairly substantial sources in that early part of the 15th century, then a bit of a gap. And then when we get to the early part of the 16th century, then we start to see what we can recognisably call the, you know, late Tudor Christmas carol. You know, it starts to, to feel more like a genre. It starts to feel more stable. And also things to, seem to concentrate around the Christmas theme. So whereas before carols were much more varied in terms of their topic and that sort of thing, by the time we get to the early 16th century, it's it's become more concrete. And the so-called Henry VIII book is one of those collections that you draw on, isn't it? Tell me about that. Yes. So, I mean, Henry VIII clearly had not only loads of fabulous instruments, you know, the inventories of his instruments are fairly considerable, but also some books or, or collections, manuscripts written to collate music that he was very, very fond of, or maybe even had a, a hand in. So yeah, so Henry's definitely owned and had a, a hand in things like the carol, the manuscript associated with his court, collects together some of the most elaborate songs of that of that time, and where there were 
clearly some evidence of not only of singing, but also they're very well suited to instruments. Again, you can imagine there's lots of different professional musicians being in, involved in, in devising them and in, in performing them as well. Probably Henry himself, I can imagine, not sitting on the sidelines. No, I don't suppose so. Well, let's listen to some modern carols and let's start with the one you mentioned, the Coventry Carol. It's quite different in tone to lots of the things we think of as carols these days. It's not quite so merry for a start. No, it's not remotely merry. And I think it's really quite dark. It's There are lots of carols that take inspiration from what we can recognise as lullabies. That sort of song sung between a parent, usually a mother, an infant. And there are also lots of early Tudor songs in which you're invited to imagine Mary as any mother, you know, she sort of stands in for any mother and the women of that period worrying that their child might be at risk because of, of Herod's decree that the young boys will be will be killed. So you can see that this is a something really profoundly human at this point. So this this carol, which comes from it's called Coventry Carol, not because Coventry has anything to do with the Bible, but because it it, we know that it was associated with plays in the in, in the town of Coventry. We don't know when it was first written, but the earliest sources are in the sort of early early 16th century. And I think the earliest melody comes from like the late 16th century. So again, we're always thinking, you know, the evidence is often a lot, a lot later than probably when it started. But this carol is a, a, a dark and quite disturbing lullaby. It's a, a lullaby lamenting the, the fate and the worry that a mother like Mary would have for her brand new baby boy when she knows that the, the other boys are being sought out and murdered. So it's, it's a, yeah, this is not your ding dong merrily on high carol. This is not hark the herald angels sing. And of course, a lot of those carols are related to Victorian ideals of Christmas rather than to this early period. The, the, there is a bit of a separation. The slightly chocolate box carols that we get from the 19th century are often a step away from the, the sort of mood set by late 15th and 16th century English songs. 
the voice in this carol is it a voice from the fab those children is it as to the massacre who's voicing it and such that's a really good question so again it sort of elides mary's voice with voices of other mothers of of that of that story but i think also it encourages to see it through the eyes of the sort of staged mother within the 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 mystery plays as well i think that I think that one of the voice verses that that woe is me, poor child for thee, you know, basically that, that singing to, you know, pretend baby on stage and therefore part of the modern world or that modern world, as well as evoking the biblical past. It's about bringing the past into the present. So you find sort of deliberate muddying of the water between who who is the mother and it helped cause this is pre-Reformation people to really identify with with Mary as human being, as mother, as, you know, she's a she's a figure of intercession and she's a figure with whom people are encouraged to kind of identify. And given that it was part of the mystery play, what does that mean what was performed? But also just even in terms of thinking about gender of the person who sang? Probably male. And what we know, of course, through the evidence, is that these plays were staged by guild members that particular age individuals and particular high status individuals got the best parts, got the most prominent parts, that there was a a match, if possible, between the guild and the part of the story in the Bible that they were associated with. So the Nailers Guild would get to do the crucifixion scene or whatever, and the Ship Makers Guild would get to do the the Noah's Ark or whatever that might be. Yeah, but this, this would have been performed by men as the women as the mothers. So that's, that does, this is an imaginative leap. I mean, it's not so different from Shakespeare's stage, of course. You know, this, I don't think that in itself, it's not sort of thigh slapping panto moment. It is just part of drama. Women were also part of dramatic ritual. You know, there are, ev- there's evidence and sources from this period and before of, for example, nuns putting on liturgical drama, you know, having props, having fake beards. So they got to do it too. They got to be wise men, for example. But it was entirely common for this this carol that's clearly associated with the plays would have been performed by young men, probably, if they're mothers. In practice, I probably ought to have started with this. This is the record of John, if we in chronological terms.
this is an Elizabethan carol, as I understand it, and it's based on John the Baptist. What's the story of this piece? So this is the record of John. Is In a sense, it's, it's, a, it's a carol that is a Christmas-themed song, or it's in about the run-up to Christmas. But in the sources, we wouldn't recognise it as a, a, as a carol. We would recognise it as an anthem, in that it, it takes a different form by this point. So this is the record of John. John the version that we, we know and love the most is by Orlando Gibbons. And what he does is he sets some verses from the Bible, and he sets it between a soloist and a, a group of and a chorus, a group of singers to, to come with the chorus. So that's that's got a carol feel to it. And then also some instruments, likely viols, a small organ, something like that. And the story is, of course, from the Bible that basically it's the story of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, who is, you know, foreshadows the birth of Christ, people are addressing him and they're saying, who are you? You know, who are you in this story? Are you are you this figure? Are you that figure? And he keeps having to say, no, I'm I'm not that person. No, no, I'm not I'm not that person. And he has to be quite emphatic. And there's a lovely moment in the anthem where he says, and he answered, no. He you can hear him getting quite annoyed. And Gibbons really evokes that moment really very, very effectively. I would say my favourite bit of this particular song though is not just the no, but when he says, I am the voice of he that crieth in the wilderness, that is just, it's set so evocatively and becomes more drawn out and emotional. It's its a really sort of heartfelt moment. After all of this, you know, who are you has happened. So its it's a beautiful kind of contrast. I'm not these things. I'm something even more special, but I'm not Christ either, you know. Yes, all of that sort of denial points in the direction of the one beautiful that you've brought up, that poignancy of saying, I'm the voice in the wilderness. What about the Gibbons who wrote the carol? So Gibbons was one of the most successful musicians of his of his of his age, living in the end of the sixteenth and into the seventeenth century. Um Orlando Gibbons, it's a fabulous name, isn't it? It sort of really evokes the period. He was a church musician, but he also wrote lots of secular music. So he wrote not only music for services, but he also wrote music for entertainment and and that sort of thing as well. Some absolutely beautiful music for groups of viols, for example. One of his most famous madrigals is the the Silver Swan, for example. So he did lots of different types of music making. And he was a bit of a predecessor for the musical language that gets sort of developed into the language of people like Henry Purcell. So he's a really important English composer of this period. And perhaps most prominently in terms of his career, he worked as a, a, a gentleman of the Chapel Royal. So he, he would have been expected to compose new music. He would have expected to copy music out for performance, arrange rehearsals, take part in services. And also he was clearly a really expert keyboard player. So that's either on virginals or on organ. So he's, he's sort of a multi-talented and, and that's probably accounts for why so much of his music has survived as well. Can you explain what you mean by his musical language and the influence it had on Purcell? Sure. Gibbons was writing at a time when musical genres were not only for professionals working in church services, but also where music was an important part of domestic spaces as well. There was a market for music in the home. And the fashions included performing not only English music, but also music from Italy, for example, madrigals and music that had sort of travelled across the Alps. And so composers like Gibbons 
wrote exceptionally well in these forms, particularly mandrigals, and were good at matching text to music. So say they were writing in five parts, that could easily become a bit of a mishmash. But in fact, people like Gibbons wrote in such a style that you'd still be able to hear the text and that the music would sort of emphasise what the text was saying. So if the text was sing- saying something about, I don't know, jumping sheep, then the, the the melody would do that same sort of gesture to kind of reflect it. We sometimes call it word painting. By the time we get to Purcell, he's always looking back to that period of Gibbons. He's not, he's still writing for vials, for example, even though that's quite an old fashioned thing to do. And he writes these lots of interweaving musical lines, but he's really enjoys writing texts that the audience can hear and, and understand as well. It's, it's meant to be audible and understandable in lots of different situations. The real breakthrough of music in the Renaissance is that you understand the text and you can hear it. Yeah, it wasn't just a breakthrough. It was a change in attitude towards what was the most important thing. So in that sort of early part of the 16th century, we can see composers starting to prioritise the audibility of the message of the text. So not just the, the, the text itself, but what it means so that those singing it can really understand its truth, really understand its its poetic gestures, really understand it on lots of different levels. And then through into the sort of post-Reformation era, that becomes really politically important, that it was a kind of contrast between Protestant clarity, participation, comprehension, that sort of thing, versus, you know, the, the pre-Reformation, oh, it was all in Latin, nobody understood it. And of course that's a that's a caricature of what musical language is like in the in the 15th and early part of the 16th century. But we do see the style change. It moves away from elaborate counterpoint towards favoring the use of the English language, favoring simpler textures. What we might see is sort of chordal writing, you know, where everyone's doing the same thing at the same time as one another to emphasize the meaning of the text. So that was that was important. And choirs working even at the Elizabethan court were still able to sing in Latin. That was okay because they understood those texts. So that that was permitted. If they didn't understand it, then that wouldn't be okay. So you can see a sort of more rarefied attitude to Latin, which still evoked Catholicism for a lot of late 16th century audiences. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how Codebreakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race, I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. We've got two more. This one, first of all, there is no rose of such virtue. about the meaning of this carol so this carol is it sounds like it's about a rose but it's it's about the virgin mary so if any time you come up against a, a rose in medieval literature it can have all sorts of different meanings often it's reflective of, of virginity itself and in this carol it's thinking about the, the miracle of mary being able to act as a bodily container for the Christ child. So there is no rose of such virtue is the is the opening lines. And it says, as, as is the rose that bear Yezu. So there isn't a rose any more virtuous than the rose that gave birth to Christ. 
So and that, so very quickly you move from thinking about whether it's a real rose to whether it's a kind of metaphorical rose. And, and in this case, it's the it's the Virgin Mary. And we're the the musical lines themselves in this carol. I always think of them as sort of unfolding like the petals of a rose as you hear the opening the opening musical gestures and then also at the end of each verse there's a little snippet of latin and that little snippet of latin usually takes just a single word like gaudeamus you know let us rejoice and it does it with a melisma that is it has lots of notes per syllable and again it sort of seems to completely unfurl so you kind of get to see the special place in mary's body where where the christ has been conceived so it's a it's a sort of a metaphor musically as well as as well as textually that's really interesting one thing i was struck by listening to this is you we've got this meditation on the little space of mary's womb and it reminded me of john donne people may well know the poem annunciation ends shortest in the immensity cloistered in thy dear womb and I was thinking well maybe Dunn was inspired by this I mean it could be that why not why not I mean that though this idea of of Mary's body being this really special place special because it's virginal and remains virginal even though she's given birth to Christ the 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 metaphor turns up in lots of different other carols also that lots of carols emphasizing that she didn't have any pain in birth and maybe she quite enjoyed breastfeeding. You know, th- those sorts of things that women will go, what? <laughs> you know, really? It's even more special if, you know, to, to those in the, in the environment in which, which these might have been performed who'd experienced any of those things. You know, how you can, you can become pregnant without an act of violence. You can be prom- become pregnant, you know, with, without your husband knowing, but it's okay. You can have a child without experience any cramping <laughs> how does that work you know so i think it wouldn't surprise me at all to think that the the poets of the of the 17th century for example would look back on this this repertoire repertoire and no doubt parts of it were still being performed and sung and and circulating in all sorts of sort of grayer ways really after the, the sort of these were originally conceived some of the earliest copies of the melodies of some of these carols don't get written down until the very last decades of the 16th century, for example. And that idea that it's talking about childbirth as being without pain and breastfeeding yeah. being without pain, although the question, of course, would have been to what extent women were feeding their own children or nursing their own children, but certainly yeah. they were giving birth a lot. And there's something kind of kind of comforting fantasy to the idea that you might go through this duty that all women who were married would probably have to go through and do so without pain. Obviously an immense privilege, obviously an immense joy, but certainly not without great agony. And yet the carol is producing a version of the world in which there might be a place where you could do that, even if it's yeah. only just in your in, in song. Absolutely. And there are so many examples of prayers written down by or for women in which they are effectively being given blessings to help them through difficult pregnancies, to help them through difficult childbirth, for example. That the, the, And during a difficult childbirth, 
you might well have a physician who was also a priest, right? So, so that the, the sacred and the secular really do come together in medicine at this point, and indeed the sort of astrological as well. So the birth of a child was such a high risk experience in many women's lives that you can imagine that the specialness of Christ and the specialness of Christ's mother was made abundantly clear by the fact that there was no pain. Oh, really? <laughs> well, that must be, that must have been a miracle then, you know, everything about it was miraculous. And you pointed out that this carol is in mostly in English, and then we have these little clauses in Latin, the Gaudimus or Res Miranda. Yeah. What does this intermingling of language tell us? What, why do it? A lot of carols have this macaronic nature, that is, they have mostly English and then the odd line of Latin, either within the verse or they have a chorus that's in Latin, for example. And they tend to be relatively stock phrases of Latin, not, you know, highly convoluted poetry that you'd need to study Latin for many years to understand. So relatively familiar sounding Latin phrases that they would have known from common prayers, like the Ave Maria, for example, or the Magnificat, the sorts of things that people would have heard very regularly in their own worship and may well have understood, even if they weren't religious by vocation. So there is Latin, but it's possible that a lot of people still understood it. And then also where they didn't understand it, of course, it was always part of the specialness of, of the story that was being narrated in English. It just reminded you, this is a holy story. It reminds you that this is a, a special lullaby, you know, whatever that might be. So Latin there serves a, perhaps a slightly magical function. You know, it reminds you of the, of the spirituality of the story and the fact that it's about about God and reminds you of that devotional culture that sort of the, the, the song is so, that the song stems from. Some carols, some, not many, that survive with music in this period are exclusively in Latin. And they seem to have been associated really with only the most literate clerical context. So, you know, your royal court chapel musicians. And from that point of view, you know, they're, they're a bit different. But the ones, the majority of carols that feature Latin feature only little snippets of Latin. And they're just almost like a little mantra, a little moment of before you start on the next verse. And they tended to use words or phrases that, that were out of their original context. So res miranda, wonderful thing. There's nothing to stop them writing just wonderful thing, but it sounds a bit more special if you say it in Latin. Okay, the last one we're going to hear is one that will be familiar to many listeners. Here's Pastime with Good Company, performed by Jay Britton, and used with her kind permission.
obviously we probably people know that this is a song that Henry VIII is said to have written, although if you have any more information about that, I'd be interested to know. Tell me about the meaning of this song and, and what's being celebrated. So Pastime with Good Company is one of those songs that seems to be closest to the possibility that Henry VIII himself might have might have written it. And it occurs in various places, but one of them is, is in that Henry VIII manuscript that we mentioned earlier. It's not the only song associated with, with Henry VIII, but it appeals to us because it gives us a bit of his character as we've received from, you know, popular literature as well as as well as history. So it is that feasting, that celebratory nature. It is everyone getting getting together for sport that is not just hunting, but also maybe love as well and friendship and collegiality and those sorts of things. And it's a celebration of, of everything that is lavish and enjoyable and opulent at the same time. So that's that popular image of Henry VIII that we all, all know and love, if you like. So I think that's one of the reasons it's so, so well associated with, with Henry VIII as the, as the likely composer, whether he composed the music or whether he composed the text or whether he did a bit of both or had a bit of help. I mean, it's not, it's absolutely not beyond the bounds of possibility that he did all of those things. He would have received a really thorough musical education. We know that he was an appreciator of music and we know that, that, that his forefathers and ancestors and foremothers were also very musical. So in the old Hall manuscript, you know, a century earlier, we have probably Henry V's two piece, pieces by him, but they were, they're sort of devotional pieces for mass. So I think my feeling is that he probably did have a hand in it, but also there is, there are other pieces. I know a dozen or so more other pieces that, that we can associate with Henry that don't get as much playtime because they don't portray Henry VIII as we know him from, from film and TV. Yes, this is very much a caricatured Henry, making sure that he has a good time. I, I quite like something about the, the words here, though, you know, the best ensue, the worst eschew. It's not terrible. I mean, it's quite fun, kind of play on words. And I like the idea that it might be Henry because it's such a culture devoted to wordplay. It is. Yeah. And you get a lot of wordplay in courtly texts generally. That's that sort of knowing, understanding of the, the sort of relationship between different different words in different contexts. And it's a song that encourages you to abandon vice that's fine, that the company is good and friendship is good, but also that youth or youthful people must have their fun. We need to effectively get it out of our system. And there's definitely a, a, a sense that young people, they go through the rite of passage of maybe being a little bit more promiscuous, but certainly having a lot of fun and revelry in, in their youth. And that's fine because that will help you in later life to live a, a more straight and you know honest life and, and to not be idle, for example. Do we know if this piece of music was associated with Christmas, or is it just because it's celebrating a good time, which means that we kind of associate it with festivities at Christmas time? This song turns up in every Christmas programme relating to Tudor period, but I don't think there's any evidence that it was written for the Christmas season particularly. It's none of another one of these festive songs that would be brilliantly suited to the Christmas period. It's exactly the sort of thing that would be at home in a court context during December, early January, but it's not a Christmas carol in the strictest sense. To finish, I just want to ask you a few final questions. One is, given that the printing press is playing such an important role in the 16th century in the spread of ideas, not least of which is the spread of ideas of the Reformation, 
did it play a similar role in the dissemination of music? After its invention, do we have evidence that we'd be more likely to hear carols sung in taverns and homes, for example? The sorts of songs that we associated with this period that were part of print culture, seemed, that seems to increase much later than the, 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 the Tudor court that we've just been talking about. So music printing was really new at the beginning of the 16th century. So although printing had you know, become more commonplace in the later 15th century, music printing, which you could only do in certain places, particularly in the in, on the continent, was pretty restricted in England during this period. So composers that we know and love, like William Byrd and Thomas Tallis, they had permission to print music in the later part of the 16th century. And they got to decide what got printed and whose music got printed and that sort of thing. It, however, it really didn't kick off as a as a way to sort of mass distribution of, of music, it's really in the 17th century that we can see what we might see as more amateur forms of music making, the market for that growing, Playford's dancing master, that sort of thing in the 17th century. And that's by that point, the carols that we're talking about were no longer really in circulation. But music for plays or music associated with plays was definitely circulating. So I'll say it again, the majority of this musical culture was an oral culture, and then there's another layer of music that gets written down for very specific reasons of particular times or places, particular functions, for example, in a play where it gets written down into manuscript. But in terms of printed examples of carols, that, that comes really towards the very end of this, of this period. The market is a little bit different from that point of view. And I was intrigued to learn from your work that there are carols that could be satirical, which seems sort of I don't know, more akin to pop music at Christmas today. Can you just tell us a little bit about those satirical carols? Not all carols were for Christmas. You know, they weren't all on religious topics. And we can see lots of examples, particularly throughout the 15th century, of carols written about politics or carols written about particular types of people. We can see carols written to poke fun at women, for example, you know, for example, there's a lovely carol, it seems to be lovely, all about women's virtues and about how they never swear and they never gossip and they never go out late and they never get drunk. They never do anything they ought not to do. But the chorus, which is in Latin, a language largely separate from women's lives, just says the reverse of this is true. So the joke is, of course, yeah, women, they're really well behaved. I don't think so. So the, the carol can also be used uh, for humour. It can be used for, for satire. It can be used for a whole variety of political contexts. We can think of the Agincourt carol as a, as a song for celebrating the victory against the French. There's little bits of really quite violent parts of that narrative. Also songs about saints, songs about, you know, nature, songs about unwanted pregnancies, songs about you know, monks who got up to no good, for example. There's all sorts of songs from this period that circulating that we would recognise as in carol form. That is, they have verses and they have choruses and they circulate with, with the same sort of texts as we also see feature the nativity in Christ and the Virgin Mary. But their tone is really quite different. Finally, we've been very Anglo-centric today, but I'd be interested to know if carols and Christmas carols specifically were unique to England or whether similar things could be found in Europe or even the Middle East or even... 
further afield? That's such a good question. Oh, God, I'm going to have to open 18 cans of worms. I'll try my best. What we call carols or Christmas carols or English carols are defined partly by the nature of the fact that they are in English and they were gathered by a particular scholar called Richard Green in the early part of the 20th century. And he gathered together, he wasn't interested in the Latin ones, and he gathered together and almost defined and created this corpus of songs, hundreds of songs that he labelled as carols. The word carol is not used for any of these songs specifically in the source manuscripts in this period. It, none of them say these are carols and they ca- and they all sort of, for example, follow a particular form. The word carol crops up throughout the period and we also have these sorts of songs that seem to be for this kind of function. So in a sense, if all we're really left with is a festive song with on, on any subject, but it could be about Christmas or it could be about Epiphany and it has to probably have some element of refrain to it, something that repeats, it might be a last line of each verse or it could be a chorus, then effectively there is a real common connection with lots of verse-chorus type genres that are found in the rest of Europe and further afield. So for example, we can point to the Virelay in France, for example, as a, a song that has verses, it has choruses, there's that kind of returning circular feeling to it and in, in northern France, certainly. There does seem to have been dancing associated with that as well as a genre. We can also see in, for example, 13th century Spain, the, the Cantigas da Santa Maria, the, the songs about the Virgin Mary that have verses and choruses and seem to also have a, a similar kind of space that sits between formal religious function and secular song. It sits in that, that grey area as being not a million miles away. So They are, in a sense, carols in the fact that they meet those criteria. But I think what Green and others of his generation wanted to find, because they were writing in a period in which nationalism was dominant, they wanted to find a genre that was uniquely English. And the fact that they defined their genre by the use of the English language meant that they're not going to find them in German because that would be called something else. So then we've suddenly got a a genre that is uniquely English, separate, isolated on an island, and therefore very special. But I think there's a lot of slippage between repertoire across the English Channel and and, and across Europe, and also perhaps influence into England also. I think there is is plenty of evidence of exchange between places like the Netherlands and, and England, for example, during Henry VIII's reign. Some of his musicians were from Italy, some of his musicians were Dutch, some of his, you know, so so we have movement of musicians, we have mu- movement of intellectual ideas, we have mu- movement of cultural objects like instruments, of course, musical genres, even ones that with English text reflect some of that pan-European context as well. But if we're looking for English Christmas carols, we're not going to find them in a in a Dutch manuscript because that, why would they have written down those songs? So it sort of becomes a, a vicious circle, really. Thank you for a wonderfully interesting interview. And I'm very grateful to you for making the time as a head of your department in the run up to Christmas, in the, at the end of term, I am immensely grateful. Absolute pleasure. And it's, it's nice to talk to you about Carol's. I love teaching. And at the moment, I'm, you know, the new incoming head of department at the University of Liverpool, having worked at a different university for 20 years. And so I, I haven't got to do much teaching yet. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's nice to have a, a bit of a, a medieval and early modern moment. Well, I'm very glad to provide it. Thank you for joining me. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and not just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles, and films. Find out more at historyhit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.